0: hold up, time out. What is going on here? That might be what you're asking yourself. And to give it to you straight, first impressions are extremely important. And back in 2020, when I started my podcast, um, I was kind of piggybacking off of the interest of Unsolved Mysteries volume one by doing recap episodes of those first and original six episodes. But as my podcast progressed, I kind of turned away from doing recaps to doing more original content. And so I wanna make sure that when people stumble across my podcast, that the very first few episodes they listen to are more representative to what I'm all about and what I do here. So with that being said, I'm going to delete my first six episodes made in 2020. And for the next six weeks, I'm gonna be posting two episodes, one recent original episode, along with one of my throwbacks. So just sit tight, listen to those episodes again, if you want to just get a refresh or skip them not offended at all, because if you've been here for a while, you've probably already listened to those episodes. I also just want to let you guys know that I appreciate you so much for sticking it out with me, for being with me for the last two years. I feel like we've really grown together. I know that I've grown into myself as an artist, as a podcaster, and I just want to tell you guys that I appreciate you so much, and thank you for coming along with me on this journey. I hope you have a great week. Enjoy the episode. You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing the House of Terror. Hello, hello and welcome to the very first episode of mystery still unsolved ah i'm so excited this is something i've been wanting to do for a long time because i love true crime any free time that i have is spent watching listening or reading about it i know it seems weird to a lot of people but i've just always loved it When I was in high school, my dream was to go to college and study the behavioral sciences so I could work for the FBI in their behavioral analysis unit. I did end up getting a degree in behavioral science, but I never applied to the FBI because by the time I graduated, I had a family and it's super hard work and it takes you away from your family too. So yeah, I've been wanting to make a true crime show for a while, but there are so many out there and I wanted to create something different, something unlike anything out there. Anyways, I'm totally geeking out that all of the time I've spent involved in true crime is finally amounting to something other than just being a bit creepy. <laughs> and I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for lending me your time. I'm so excited to have you here today. I hope you enjoy this episode and you keep coming back every week. When I heard that Netflix would be releasing episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, I let out an audible gasp. Then I started the first episode and the iconic music began to play. It brought me back to being a kid and staying up late at night, scaring the crap out of myself. Eventually, I would get so tired, but I would be too afraid to go to bed. So I just try and stay up as long as I could before I eventually just pass out on the couch. That's what I did for fun as a kid, and my husband can attest that although it's been years, I'm still staying up late scaring the crap out of myself to this day. I am so excited to use this platform as a way to discuss Unsolved Mysteries and get to know all of you fellow true crime lovers. Brian, my husband, doesn't care for these shows in the way that I do, so it will be nice to have a little community of people where we can talk about our theories, opinions, ideas, and all the sketchy stuff. Before I forget, I just want to share with you guys that since this is just a newborn little baby podcast, I wanted to figure out a fun way for you guys to be engaged and spread the word. I've made an Instagram account at mystery still unsolved, where we can speak and discuss cases. I also wanted to thank you all for joining. So I decided to do a little contest Follow me on Instagram and enter a drawing I've posted for a chance to win a $25 gift card to Amazon. Since we won't have too many followers quite yet, you'll probably have a high chance of winning. All you need to do is follow me and tag as many people as you can on that post. Every single post is a separate entry, so seriously, tag everyone you know who loves true crime. Next week, I'll announce the winner, and the winner will receive a $25 gift card to Amazon.com. So, yeah, come and hang out with me at Mystery Still Unsolved on Instagram. I promise it will be fun. With this being the first episode, I also wanted to make a few promises to you, the listeners today. The content of my podcast can be dark and a bit heavy, so I will do my best to provide you with accurate information and make things light from time to time because I know that it can be a lot. It really can be a lot to sit and listen to the details of the crimes. That being said, I promise to never make light or disparage any victim. Furthermore, I promise to refer to the victims by their names, always. I know law enforcement is trained to say victim and the body and the remains, etc., but I'm not a police officer. I want to remember that these are real people with real families, so I'm going to use their names. Before we begin, I would like to cite my sources for this episode. Obviously, a lot of my information comes from the episode itself, but I did also do some research of my own. I used articles from opramag.com, marieclaire.com, france24.com, and of course, Wikipedia. This episode is titled House of Terror. It all begins in a charming, quiet neighborhood in Nantes, France. And pardon my French pronunciations. I took Spanish in high school, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce these towns and names, but just know that my French might have a little bit of an Espanol flair to it. But anyways, Nantes, France. A neighbor, later identified as Estelle Chapon starts this episode off by telling us that she remembers walking by the home one Tuesday morning. She mentions the oddity of the house being all closed up. As long as she had known the family that lived within the home, the shutters were always open. She said she was shocked when she saw them closed. She says it was at that very moment when she sees the shutters closed that she realized something is very wrong. Okay. To be honest with you, I don't know if I would notice something like that, maybe you would, but I don't think I would. Maybe I need to be paying more attention to my surroundings, I don't know. Would you notice something like that? And even if I did notice, I don't think I'd automatically assume the worst. Also, Estelle, you've never seen the shutters closed, not even when they're on vacation. I mean, I don't want to say that she jumped to conclusions because she does end up being absolutely right in the end but I don't know if I would want someone in my neighborhood paying that close attention to my home that they'd notice something so small like that and just jump to the worst. She continues to say that they seemed just like your typical normal family, but that you never know what's really happening behind closed doors. Ugh, so ominous and creepy, but okay Estelle, you've got my full attention, girl. Then we are introduced to a journalist named Anne-Sophie Martin. She is telling us about Nantes. She says it's a large city situated in the west of France. In the middle of the town, there is a residential area where upper middle class residents live. We learn that this is the neighborhood where the terror house is located. Then there is a montage of Anne-Sophie Riding around on a motorcycle, m- slash moped, slash scooter. I don't know what it is, but it sounds like a lawnmower that's about to break down. But you can tell that Aunt Sophie believes it is a motorcycle, and she wants us to believe that it's a motorcycle, and I'm wondering... How hard do you think Aunt Sophie pushed for the scene to be included in the special? It was probably written into the contract. She was probably like, include this moped scene or I'm out of here. I'm like, calm down, Aunt Sophie. We get it. You think you're a bad bit. But can we please get back to the story? Jeez. She says that even though this horrible incident happened in 2011, it still haunts everyone who lives in Nantes, France, especially those who Continue to live in the neighborhood. Now we're back with Estelle, the neighbor, and she is properly introduced. She was friends with Agnes Dupont de Ligonesse, the wife and mother of the family. She was doing odd jobs for them, like doing altercations of the kids' clothing and ironing the husband's shirts. Now, (laughs) can we just stop for a minute? Maybe I'm ratchet as heck, but why is someone hiring anyone? to iron their shirts. Can the husband not iron his own dang shirts? It's really not that hard. I don't know if they were doing Estelle a favor, like maybe Estelle was looking for side hustles to make some extra cash, but already I'm picking up on my radar, some douchiness in regards to the husband who can't iron his own dang shirts. Maybe that's just me. You guys can let me know if you think I'm reading into it too much, but that's just what I'm picking up on already then they start showing pictures of the family but just pictures of the mother and the kids and again my radar is going off about this dad he can't iron his own dang shirts and he's not in any of these photos where the family actually looks happy and you can tell from the pics that they're Actually, happy, not like fake Instagram happy. It's all in the eyes, people, and you could not see an ounce of fear or worry in their eyes, which makes the story even that much more tragic to me because you just know that most likely none of them ever saw this coming, which, yeah, it just breaks my heart that much more for them. The family consists of four children and the parents. The dad is, get ready for this. Count Xavier Dupont de Legones. And right then I'm like, this guy, he's a count everyone. Xavier would like everyone to know that he's a count. Okay, dude. The journalist says he's very good at communicating and he's fast to laugh at things, blah, blah, blah. Like you can already tell that she's trying so hard to find even somewhat redeeming qualities about this guy but it's a stretch, whatever. I can already tell he's garbage. Let's move on. The mother Agnes works at a Catholic school. She is extremely religious and she ensures the children attend mass every Sunday. I learned from another source that Xavier is not religious at all. Agnes is stunning, seriously so beautiful and she just seems like someone that I'd wanna know because she just seems very genuine to me. They have four children. Arthur is 20. He's very handsome and he is going to a Catholic college. There's Thomas. He's 18. He's a little bit more shy. He studies music at a Catholic college too. Anne is 16. She is gorgeous. She models in fact and she is very smart. And then journalist Anne Sophie says something that kind of rub me, rubs me the wrong way. Uh, She says, Anne was the best of all the children. Anne-Sophie, I do not think that you should be saying things like that. Oh my gosh, even if you really feel that way, don't say that out loud. Benoit, the youngest, is 13. He likes to play the drums they really do seem like such a sweet family well except for the dad he seems like a weirdo and a half and maybe you think i'm jumping the gun a bit but i'm serious guys when you watch and listen and research true crime as much as i have you just know Like before this episode, I had never heard of this particular case, but I've watched enough true crime that as soon as they showed his picture and as soon as they started rattling off his characteristics, I turned to Brian. Oh, Brian is my husband, by the way. And I said, He's a family annihilator. And my husband was like, Do you really think so? And I was like, You'll see. If anything, all my crazed obsession with this stuff has taught me how to pick out a family annihilator from a mile away. Okay. On-screen text says Monday, April 11th, 2011. Estelle is again saying that she noticed something terribly off about the house. The shutters are closed. Girl, we've established that. But there's also a note on the mailbox slash door that says stop leaving mail here. Thank you. Seriously, Estelle, why didn't you leave it that? That's weirder than the dang shutters being closed. I mean, seriously, Estelle. A few days pass and Estelle is keeping an eye on on the home and it's still the same. She's worried about where they could be. So on Wednesday, April 13th, she calls the police to do the French version of what I'm assuming is like their version of a welfare check. Now we meet the police chief of the time, Jean-Marc Bloch. He says the local police arrived to just make sure that there's nothing out of the ordinary. He tells us that the shutters are closed. The French are apparently very worried about closed shutters, guys. I guess shutters are always open in France. So if you go there, make sure you never close them or you're going to really freak them out. And the door is locked. Now Jean-Marc says they call a locksmith to open the door. I don't know about you. But at this point, I thought that was very drastic for what is essentially a welfare check. Keep in mind, Estelle only noticed the shutters were closed like two to three days ago. I mean, for all we know, at this point, the family is ill or on vacation or had a family emergency that called them out of town, and I just think it's a little drastic to be doing that already. But maybe that's just usual protocol for the French police. They get in, and everything is in its place, except the bed sheets have been removed. Hmm. But other than that, everything seems normal and it seems like the family has left voluntarily and there's not much to do at this point. However, Estelle mentions that the only one car is missing and it isn't their large vehicle it's their smaller car which would have made it impossible for them to fit a family of six along with their two large dogs and any luggage that they might have had with them so i agree with estelle that this is pretty weird but then i'm still playing devil's advocate and i'm like well maybe they took a taxi to the airport or part of their family took a taxi to the airport I mean, if you take a train or a plane anywhere in France, you could be in a completely different country by lunchtime. So I'm still holding out hope, even though I know I'm watching Unsolved Mysteries and I know that the data is shady AF. Backtrack to April 9th, 2011. Some of the close family and friends start receiving letters, supposedly from the DuPont family. This letter is from Xavier. And it says that they moved to the U.S. because the Americans have recruited Xavier to help them infiltrate a drug ring, and they have to change their identities, and they won't be able to see or talk to anyone for the foreseeable future. TikTok, it's sketch o'clock. First off, I thought Xavier was just a businessman or whatever. Why on earth would the Americans seek him out and recruit him to infiltrate a drug ring? I'm so confused. Okay, and guys, this isn't just a quick, hey, we're in the US, we won't see you for a while, bye. This letter is eight pages long. That's very long. But you know I read that letter because I'm not a quitter. In a nutshell, the letter says that when the family went to Florida years ago, they were approached by a member of the DEA. The DEA knew Xavier was meeting with french nightclub owners because of what his business entailed and they wanted his help to uncover a drug ring within the nightclubs to protect his family's safety they returned to france not because of dangerous vaccinations that the children were being forced to get to attend school but because the daa had asked them to his many business trips back and forth were due to him needing to travel to florida However, his cover had been compromised, and that is why they needed to leave so abruptly. Then the letter has a laundry list of things that people who were sent the letters need to do. He mentions that in order to keep their government involvement secret, even though he's telling them the truth that they are in the United States, he had to tell the children's schools and Agnes's place of employment that they are going to Australia. He asks his friends and family to spread the word on social media that they are in Australia and to just go along with it. And that's the letter, and I'm going to go ahead and raise the BS flag because I'm just not buying any of it. All right. now we meet Bruno de Stabenroth, a childhood friend of Xavier. He says the letter definitely sounds like Xavier wrote it. He is using vernacular and phrases that Xavier would use. So I do believe at this point that Xavier wrote the letter. Because when you really know someone, like really, really know them, you know they're writing. Like if I get a text from my mom and it isn't separated into at least eight text messages and doesn't have a thousand exclamation points in it, I know that it's not my mom. She's dead. <laughs> Bruno still lives in Versailles. He has known Xavier since the 70s. They met when they were both 16 and they became best friends right away. Bruno says that he and Xavier were nobles in that they were all descendants of French aristocrats. Apparently, Xavier wasn't just any noble. His family was very prestigious. Xavier's dad was a count, and there had been like musketeers in their family. So the nobility traditions were very important to the DuPont family. Xavier met Agnes in the 80s. He was 20 years old and Agnes was either 16 or 17. She was very traditional and conservative. They were both very much in love, but Xavier craved adventure and he wanted to travel. So he ended up breaking up with Agnes and traveling for a year. When he returned home he discovered agnes is pregnant obviously with somebody else's kid to bruno's surprise xavier marries agnes anyways and raised her son as his very own bruno found what xavier did to be very courageous and admirable okay so i'm assuming just because of the information that we've been given about the family and their nobility status that this was quite a scandal they don't really get into any repercussions or any negative discord within the family during this time, but I'm assuming that if they held very traditional and conservative values, that this may have caused um, like some tension or some friction within the family, specifically, uh, most likely, with Sever's parents. Again, I'm totally speculating and attempting to read in between the lines here, but that's what I would guess based on the information that we've been provided so far. Okay, so back to the letters. Agnes' family reaches out to, like, a district attorney and basically says that this is all very bizarre. That Agnes never would have taken the children without giving them a heads up first. So, the police return to the home on April 15th for another welfare check to do an even more thorough lookover. over. This time though, they noticed that all of the pictures are missing from their frames and have been placed back onto the wall. I don't know if that was like that the first time that they came or if they just didn't notice it the first time. It's not clear from what the police chief tells us, but keep in mind at this time we don't really know what's happened to the family. The police believe the family took the photographs with them, but I have a theory that this was just another way to buy time for whoever did something to them. If you take out all of the family pictures from the home, it's going to be harder for the police to get current photos out to the media. They don't mention this or anything, but this is just my personal opinion. Other than that, though, there's nothing suspicious or terribly out of the ordinary again, so the police just leave. I mean, what can they do? There's just missing bedsheets and missing pictures. And let's not forget about those shutters, guys. I'm surprised they didn't call Interpol right then. Agnes's family isn't satisfied with that answer, so they continue to push the police. And seriously, good for them for sticking to their gut feeling. But the police return on the 18th. The police return on the 19th and the 20th and nothing unusual at all. Then they return for a sixth time. The last time, on April 21st. It's during this visit that the lieutenant finds something very unusual under the terrace. It's sort of like a plank of wood covered with dirt. Apparently, simultaneously, while this lieutenant is discovering something odd under the family's terrace, a press conference is being held on all the media channels asking for assistance in locating the family in this bizarre case of disappearances, so they can just get in touch with them and see if they're all right. While the press conference is being given, the DA holding the conference is called out to take a phone call. He later returns and abruptly ends the press conference with no explanation why. We now know that he had just been delivered the terrible news that the family and their dogs were all found buried underneath the terrace. Even though I know I'm watching Unsolved Mysteries, I always find myself holding out hope that maybe the family did just really want to start life somewhere new and they were never heard of again, but that they are happy and healthy somewhere. But it's usually not the case with Unsolved Mysteries. Just awful. They continue by saying, They find them all wrapped in blankets and duvet covers, then tied up and put into plastic bags. At this point, Brian turns to me and says, "'I guess you were wrong. It says that they found them all.'" Brian is also always holding out hope that the dad slash husband isn't going to be the garbage person because he doesn't want them to tarnish men for all the good ones out there. And at this point, I'm thinking maybe Brian's right and my radar is broken. I'm thinking, okay, so if it wasn't the dad, it's got to be an outside party. Then they discover upon opening up the bags that placed upon each of the family members is a Virgin Mary statue, a candle, and a cross. Then I'm thinking, okay, it has to be someone close to the family who knows how religious Agnes and the kids are. This has to be someone who had a personal relationship with them. Like, who the heck killed this family? They're really drawing it out here, but then they finally tell us that in the makeshift cemetery, underneath the terrace, they find Agnes, Arthur, Benoit, Anne and the two dogs and in a separate grave was thomas but one person is missing where's the dad where's xavier he's gone why because he's a freaking family annihilator i was right which sucks but xavier sucks more Xavier's friend Bruno still seems hopeful though and I can't blame him it would be hard to think you were friends with someone for so long who could have done something like this but at this point Bruno thinks maybe Xavier's been killed and has been hidden in the attic or is in the floorboards, or is in another part of the garden but Xavier isn't there and he isn't dead and he has made the prime suspect in this case almost immediately. A warrant is issued and sent to Interpol, and now people are finally looking for him. But this guy has done such a thorough job of keeping people away. The letters, his cleaning up at the crime scene. Because keep in mind, police went there six times and didn't see anything unusual, out of the ordinary, weird. So now he has quite a head start on the police. Now... We are going to meet the DuPont's family attorney and he's saying that it is impossible for Xavier to have done this because all of his family knew that he had a bad back and he couldn't have dug a hole underneath the terrace because of this bad back that he has and that he was always talking about how much pain his back was in and that he could barely bend his back, blah, 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 bad back. Maybe... DuPont family attorney, he had a bad back because, oh, I don't know, he's been slowly digging and discreetly digging a hole underneath his terrace for who knows how long. Just a thought. I'm sure digging a hole underneath your terrace would be uncomfortable and it would certainly take time, but it's not impossible. And Xavier has had a lot of time considering how long it took for them to discover the family. But the attorney is sticking to this dumb story and this dumb narrative that it's basically impossible for Xavier to have done this and that it had to be somebody else because Xavier has a bad back. The journalist Anne-Sophie says that Xavier has the characteristics of a father hen. She explains him as being a very present dad who is very concerned and interested in their lives, which is a nice way of saying he was a bit controlling, I think. Again, Anne-Sophie is grasping at straws in her attempt to compliment this guy, but you can tell she's not even buying what she's selling. The autopsies finally come back. Thomas and... Benoit and Arthur were found to have sleeping pills in their system, so they were put to sleep before the murders. Agnes didn't have sleeping pills in her system, but apparently she had a sleep apnea machine, which helped her achieve deep sleep. It is discovered that Agnes' sleeping machine stopped suddenly at 3 a.m. on April 4th. April 4th, guys! The family was not found until April 21st. Remember Estelle noticed something on April 11th? So we thought he only had a 10-day head start, but no, they were killed 17 days ago. Xavier could be anywhere at this point. So Agnes was killed first. Three of the four children were killed after the mother all of them were shot in the head with a 22 rifle, but the neighbors say that they didn't hear anything. But this execution of the family is even more unusual because there are no traces of blood anywhere. No blood spatter anywhere. Not in the bedrooms, not in the living room, not on any walls or floors. They also don't find DNA or fingerprints on any of the bodies. How can that be? So there isn't really any hard physical evidence to link Xavier to this crime other than his family is dead and he is missing. Also, Xavier has no criminal history, not even so much as a parking ticket, but now he's like this criminal mastermind who can commit heinous crimes without leaving any DNA or any blood spatter. I'm seriously so confused. Bruno is back, and he is telling us that Xavier wouldn't have ever done this, and I can see where he's coming from, because the DuPont family name would have stopped with him and his sons. Because of Xavier's deeply rooted traditional values, Bruno claims Xavier would have never risked ending his lineage by killing his family, especially his boys. The police chief is now telling us that while the DuPonts had an appearance of being perfect with the good jobs and the smart kids all enrolled in private Catholic schools and the beautiful house and the best neighborhood, there was trouble, a bruin underneath the surface. They dig into Xavier, and it's discovered that he isn't living the idyllic life he wants everybody to think. Apparently, the DuPont family had previously attempted to move to Florida, but it didn't work out as planned, so they were forced to return. However, instead of owning up to the fact that Xavier's business had failed in Florida, they returned under the guise that Agnes didn't want the children to get the required vaccinations the children would have needed to attend school in America. But, really, Xavier's business had failed, and they lost their savings in their venture of moving internationally and then having to move back to France again. From 2001 to 2011, Xavier is feeling more and more like a failure. They used up all of their life savings. He has um, bill collectors calling and coming to the home constantly. But, meanwhile, he's trying to continue this facade of being a wealthy businessman. He knew that soon there would be no more money left and they'd have to leave this life that they had grown accustomed to. They don't mention if Agnes or the children knew anything about this in the Netflix episode, so I don't know at this point if this is something that they were being, that was being kept from them or not. Bruno says Xavier, is vain and proud and would never want his wife and kids and the extended family to know that they have no money. He would never want anyone to know about it. Anne-Sophie, the journalist, says that it was almost like he was on a mission to save his children and wife from disgrace. I learned from an article posted on opramag.com that Xavier liked to frequent online forums and had once written, if we all die at once then everything will be over. We would no longer want for anything. I just don't understand family annihilators. Like, I get that they think that they are saving their family from shame, disappointment, whatever. But I will just never understand how they got to this conclusion and why they think that killing their family is a great solution to their problem. I think maybe a person just gets so desperate that they spiral into a tornado of awful ideas and one just sticks and like a cancer it just spreads and grows and grows and becomes so powerful that they just cannot shake it three months before the murders Xavier's dad Bernard Hubert who goes by Hubert passes away of a heart attack I think Xavier was hoping that there would have been some sort of inheritance or something left to him of monetary value that could have helped him out of this money situation that he was facing however the money had been spent and there was nothing left. Apparently, while going through his father's things, however, he was able to find a ring and a 22 long rifle. Apparently, Hubert had been living in poverty for quite some time. He was living in an apartment and wasn't living the life of splendor that he wanted or was accustomed to. They think that this was the moment that hit Xavier so hard, and he possibly thought, this is going to be my life. This is how my life is going to turn out to be. And this is how my children's life is going to turn out to be. And that's when the idea of saving his family by killing them came about sticking. Hubert's neighbor returns to tell us that his last memory of Xavier was very disturbing. He said that normally Xavier was very friendly and smiley and outgoing. But the last time he saw him, Xavier was going down the stairs eyes staring straight ahead, stone-faced, and carrying a gun out of the apartment building. He claims Xavier had, quote, a dark demeanor. On February 2nd, Xavier obtains a gun license. From the moment he acquires this gun, he goes to the shooting range and poses unusual questions to the instructors, particularly about silencers. Then on March 12th, he buys a silencer, Red flags, red flags all around. So in case you were wondering why Thomas, the second oldest boy, but technically Xavier's oldest because Arthur, remember, was adopted by Xavier, was not buried with the rest of the family and the dogs. We're going to get into that now. Thomas wasn't killed early Monday morning like everyone else. Thomas had to leave to go back to his university. On Tuesday, Xavier calls his son and makes up a story about how Agnes his mother had been in a bicycle accident and now she's in a coma and needs to come home right away because she could die Thomas of course returns home and the last they hear from him is when he sends a text message to a friend at midnight on Tuesday his friend responds back shortly after and never gets a text message back detectives believe this is most likely because Thomas had been drugged with a sleeping aid and had fallen asleep by this point I don't know if they have evidence of hesitation with Thomas, but both the police chief and journalists mentioned that Xavier must have hesitated before killing him because Thomas would have been the last living heir of the DuPont de Ligonesse family. So again, it's been three weeks since Xavier and the family has been last seen and the police are searching everywhere for this guy. On April 22nd, his car is found at a small hotel, Once they find the car, they are able to reconstruct what they believe happened. From another source, I read that on April 2nd, Xavier purchases several bags of quicklime from several different locations. At first, I was like, that's a lot of freaking limes, but why is this even important? But upon further review, quicklime is actually not a fruit. It is a chemical compound that can be used to preserve bodies and stifle the stench of decomposition, but then I read on another report that quicklime hastens decomposition and stifles the odor. So, I don't know. If you happen to know anything about quicklime and its effects on corpses, first, I'm very concerned, and second, let me know. On Sunday, April 4th, Agnes, Arthur, Anne, and Benoit are killed. On Monday, April 5th, Thomas is killed. I learned from another source that Xavier calls Agnes sick to work on Monday because she has gastritis. He also calls into Anne and Benoit's school, the youngest, and says that they are sick as well. Another source, two waiters from a high-end restaurant report waiting on Thomas and Xavier on the night of April 5th. They remember that two barely spoke to one another and that Thomas mentioned not feeling well towards the end of the meal. On Tuesday, April 6th, Xavier is seen by a neighbor and it is believed he spent almost a week at the home after he killed his family. In my opinion, plenty of time to do a deep clean and get rid of evidence. Also, on the evening of April 6th, Arthur, the oldest son's girlfriend, gets worried about him because she hasn't heard from him in a few days And she goes to the home and she knocks on the front door. No one answers, but she claims a light is on downstairs and that she found it incredibly odd that the dogs did not bark when she knocked and rang the doorbell. On April 7th, one of Thomas' classmates texts him to ask him where the heck he's been. He gets a short response saying, I won't be coming for a bit. I'm really sick. Then the next day, the friend receives another message saying, I lost my phone charger and my phone's almost dead but my dad's going to buy me a new one. From another source, I learned that a receipt for a DIY store located three and a half hours away was uncovered and was dated on March 23rd. The purchases made were large bin liners, concrete, digging tools, and a box of adhesive plastic paving slabs. Uh, what are you working on there, Xavier? Some sort of sketchy-as-heck project that you need to drive three and a half hours away from home to get your supplies? Even more damning evidence is that the lease on their house had been terminated and the kids' terms at school had been paid off in full without the knowledge of Agnes. Hmm. This is very interesting. On April 10th, Xavier leaves Nantes. Apparently, he was caught on a camera speeding somewhere between Nantes and La Rochelle. Okay, just a little fun fact, Rochelle. My mom was trying to find a name for me in the baby book um, after I was born, and she stumbled across the name Rochelle. She pronounced it Rochelle because of her accent and then corrected herself. But my dad said, no, I actually like it better the other way and that's how I got my name Rochelle. Anyways, moving on. Um, He gets caught on a camera speeding somewhere, and that's how we know that he's on the move at this time. His credit card statements show that he stops for lunch because doing sketchy things can make you feel hungry, and he purchases a room for the night in La Rochelle because doing sketchy things can make you feel tired too. On April 11th, the Catholic school where Anne and Benoit attend receive a letter saying that the kids would no longer be attending school there as Xavier had gotten a work opportunity in Australia. Later that day, it is reported that Xavier travels southwest. Police believe that he's on the run, but he doesn't seem to be rushing anywhere. He's only traveling 102 kilometers, which is 62 to 120 miles for us Americans, each day. So it's not like he's acting like someone in any type of particular hurry. He's just kind of meandering between these little French towns. He isn't even trying to hide. He's using his credit cards, which I'm sure he knows can be traced. He's withdrawing money from ATMs with surveillance cameras and isn't even attempting to conceal his face. This doesn't seem like a man running from anyone, let alone the police and Interpol. Anne-Sophie mentions how interesting it is that he was so cautious and meticulous at the crime scene but that he seems to be very sloppy right now, just leaving evidence, paper trails, and appearing on surveillance videos left and right, and I agree with her completely. It's like he doesn't care or he doesn't think he's going to be caught. Granted, you know he's probably watching the news every single night and they haven't said anything because at this point no one even knows his family is dead for another 10 days. He must have thought that he had committed the perfect crime. Another thing worth mentioning is that 98% of family annihilators kill their families and then immediately commit suicide. One thing I've thought is that maybe after he murdered his family, he attempted to kill himself but he was too afraid to do it, so we just thought, I'll go on the run, and when the police find me, I'll just do a shootout with them, and they can do what I'm not brave enough to do. They didn't mention anything like this, but it's just a little theory that I was thinking about. It's also interesting to know that all the little French towns where Xavier is visiting on this weird escape route aren't in fact random. They actually all hold personal significance to him and his family. He goes to the town where he and Agnes got married, then to the town where they had each of their children, then to another town which was the vacation spot for them. It's like he feels guilty and is going to all these places to feel closer to them. Maybe another way to not miss them might have been not to kill them. Just saying. The last known stop was on April 14th, Ugh, my wedding anniversary, yikes. And I'm not even going to pretend I know how to say this, uh, this town. Rockham broom argens I was doing okay with the French names and then they threw this name out of left field. But Rockham broom Ar- argens I don't know. He is seen on an ATM camera withdrawing 30 euros. Again, not even trying to conceal his identity in any way. It's like he wants to be found and he spends the night in a hotel there. Now, on April 15th, this is when they discover footage from a CCTV camera, the last known footage captured of Xavier on camera ever. Xavier is seen leaving his vehicle with a big black bag, like a large duffel bag almost. They can see a long object in the bag, most likely his rifle. And investigators say that he looks directly at the camera, purposely and intently, and it's almost as if he's saying goodbye to them or like, nice try... In the area that Xavier is seen walking towards, there is a mountain with cliffs and caves and rocks, and then he just sort of disappears out of screen. Once this footage is discovered on April 22nd, the investigators extensively search the canyon. At this point, they think they will find a body because they believe he has gone out into the wilderness to commit suicide, as 98% of family annihilators do. So they bring in cadaver dogs, they bring in caving experts who end up searching 40 caves. They search for two months checking every nook and cranny within these mountains and they don't find a single thing. No gun, no big black bag, no body, nothing. Xavier has never used his credit card again and has never been on CCTV after that. Apparently, in 2014 and again in 2015, two bodies were discovered in the mountain area where Xavier was last seen. However, upon assessment, they do not believe that the remains are Xavier Dupont's. There is a theory, and Anne Sophie and Bruno believe this theory, that Xavier was aware that 98% of family annihilators commit suicide, and he was relying on the police officers knowing about this. So Xavier was intentionally leading the investigators on this wild chase to buy himself more time when in fact he was never planning on taking his own life. Bruno really surprises me here at the end of this episode. The whole time you think that he is on Xavier's side and he really makes a complete 180 here. He believes Xavier brought them there to trick them into searching the entire mountain for him knowing that it would only buy him more time to get further and further away. So now Bruno thinks that he, his friend did do it. And Bruno seems really angry now. He looks in the camera, almost as though he is peering into the lens and into the eyes of his best friend, and asks, how could you do something like this? How could you strip your children of their future? How could you kill people? The police chief returns and says there is no clue as to where he could be. Bruno and the journalist Anne-Sophie believe it would have been easy for Xavier to buy a cargo boat ticket, as the ocean was only 30 kilometers, 18 for us Americans, 18 miles, away from where his car was parked. Xavier Dupont is a vanilla person. He is average height, average weight, brown hair, brown eyes, no distinct physical characteristics. The chief gives a subtle burn and even says, there's nothing special or remarkable about him. He would blend in just about anywhere. Dang, Jean-Marc. Why you gotta be so salty? But he does add that this has made it very difficult to find Xavier Saying Essentially, he is nowhere and everywhere at the same time. As of 2019, investigators have followed up on 900 tips, all leading to a dead end. This episode ends with Bruno now slamming his friend as he looks into the camera once again and asks... How can you look at yourself in the mirror while you brush your teeth or whatever you're doing and live with what you have done? Bruno, I think that this is what we all want to know. And that's the end of the Netflix episode, House of Terror. Before we end, I wanted to share some other theories that are out there in the universe. So a lot of Xavier's and Agnes' family don't believe that the DuPont family are dead at all. Apparently, no one was ever allowed to identify any of the bodies. The DNA of the people found under the terrace are all related to one another. However, the DNA extracted from Agnes does not match any of her surviving family members. Supposedly. Also, many of them claim that the heights and weights of the bodies recovered do not match their family members and are completely off. The bodies were cremated after the funeral and therefore cannot be exhumed for further testing. The family is also weary to the fact that the medical examiner was unable to pin down an exact date of the murders. The official report states that the family could have been killed anywhere between April 3rd and April 13th, which I mean... Yeah, that's 10 days, that's a huge disparity, so something does seem off. But if you remember, he did purchase four bags of quicklime the day before the murder, which can be used to delay or speed up the decomposition of bodies. We don't freaking know because all the sites that I found were contradictory. I'm assuming it hastens it because it's called quicklime, so it speeds things up. I don't know. If you're a serial killer, send me a message over our Instagram account at mysterystillunsolved. Don't come to my house. Just send me a message to the internet. Thank you. Xavier's sister claims she received an email from Xavier a few years ago explaining that no matter what she's been hearing on the news, that he did not have anything to do with killing his family and that they are all safe and using fake identities in America. A journalist claims that she received a photograph in the mail in July of 2015 The photograph supposedly shows two of the DuPont children, Arthur the oldest and Benoit the youngest, sitting at a kitchen table eating breakfast. The back of the picture says, I am still alive from then until this hour. Ugh, Xavier, if this is you, why do you have to be so cryptic and weird AF? Just write, doing good, don't worry about us. Why does it have to sound like a freaking Edgar Allan Poe poem? A few interesting things not mentioned in the episode is that Agnes apparently also frequented online forums and she once wrote, I am unhappy in my marriage and I am afraid and anxious of my old-fashioned husband. She continues, he thinks the father is the head. He gives an order and we must execute it without seeing to question or understand, period. She also mentions that she felt terribly alone and was very concerned about their family's current money situation. So in this theory, Agnes is aware of the financial circumstance. There are also rumors of a mistress in Paris, rumors that Xavier used his wife's own jewelry to fund his escape as it was allegedly missing from the family home. I don't know if I agree with any of these theories, but I thought I'd share them with you anyway so you can make an informed decision about what you think might have happened. This is a tough case, but my theory is that he did do it. I don't think that there's any way he didn't do it. He definitely did it. The only question I have is how was he able to do it without leaving any evidence whatsoever? I don't think that he killed himself in those mountains like he's trying to make it seem. I do think he was purposefully leading the investigators on. I think if he had committed suicide, they would have found something by now, whether it be remains or at least the black bag would have shown up. I think he paid for a ticket in cash for either a train or a boat, and he is off somewhere hiding in plain sight in a foreign country. He's probably married with kids, most likely another son to carry on his family's legacy, But I believe that justice is always served, whether now or later. Guys, this happened nine years ago. No matter what happened, if they're safe in America, if they're actually dead, if Xavier did it or if he didn't do it, their surviving relatives and friends deserve answers. It is long overdue. Long overdue. If you happen to be listening and you have any information at all regarding this matter bonjour French people, but in all seriousness, please, please, please go to unsolved.com and leave an anonymous tip. It's anonymous. No one will know that it was you. To this day, obviously because this Netflix episode was just released, Xavier has not been found and he is still wanted so that he can be questioned about the deaths of Agnes, Arthur, Thomas, Anne, and Benoit de Pont de I'm going to continue to keep an eye on the development of this case and will keep you guys updated with any and all new information. I made a post on Instagram at mystery unsolved regarding this mystery. If you have any theories that you'd like to share, I would love to hear them. Do you think he did it? Do you think he's being framed? Do you think there's any possibility that they could be alive? Go to my post and tell me your thoughts. I would love to hear them. If you like this episode, please follow me on Instagram at unsolved and share with your true crime-loving friends and family. Furthermore, I want to take a minute to thank my kids for being so quiet while I was recording this. I know it's super hard for a 5- and 1-year-old to be quiet for this amount of time, and I know how much harder it is as a parent to keep a 5- and 1-year-old quiet for this long too. So thanks, Brian, for doing that and for supporting me in this new venture. Join me next week, and together we'll discover... Did someone call in a useful tip? Has justice prevailed, or is the mystery still unsolved?